As a kid, perhaps you like to have the last word. I'll never forget this day. She and I were going back and forth, and she told me finally, this is it. That's the way it's going to be. But you learn quickly what happens if you ever tried to have the last word. But my mother showed me very quickly that she had the last word. There was a solace you could take, though, in knowing your parents had it under control, especially when times got tough. And Jesus is saying to John and Vision, listen, I know your, your people are being persecuted. I know they're being punished for standing tall. I know it appears as though everything is falling apart, including the very church of God. But remember, I have the last word. Welcome to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp. Here, we hope you'll find answers to some of life's everyday struggles. You can learn more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. It can sometimes feel overwhelming living in this world with forces that assail us from every side. And this week, Charles Tapp reveals the hope God wants his church to know in these last days. As he continues with part six of his series, Christ First, a journey through the book of Revelation with his message, The Last Word. Today, as we continue our series, as we've been taking this journey through the book of Revelation, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks at the seven messages, the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor that we find in Revelation chapter 2 as well as chapter 3. And although each of these seven churches were given their own unique message, each church received the entire book of Revelation as a whole. And this is important because despite the fact that each church received their own tailor-made message based on their own unique situation and their own unique set of circumstances, there were various aspects of the seven messages that could apply to any of these seven churches, as well as the church in every age, which, by the way, includes the church of the last days, and that's the church in which you and I are a part of. And as we shared before, each of the seven messages were, in essence, Jesus' evaluation of their spiritual condition which basically included four elements. First of all, with each church, he begins with a word of commendation, a word of praise, well-deserved praise, followed by a strong rebuke showing his disapproval. Then Jesus would give, in vision to John, a remedy for each of the churches based on what they were going through at the time and how they could turn around, make a U-turn, and begin in another direction. And lastly, each of these seven letters ends with a reminder of the reward that each will receive if they are willing to accept the counsel, the remedy which has been offered. For the church of Ephesus, we discover that Jesus' recommendation for them was that they stood firm when it came to the truth, that they stood tall, that they worked hard in being defenders of the faith. But then Jesus rebukes the believers at Ephesus because he tells them, although you did this, 
Although you worked hard, you did not do that in my power. You did it in your own power. It was not a work of the Holy Spirit within you, but it was simply a work of your own flesh. In essence, Jesus was saying to the believers at Ephesus, what you need is an experience of the fresh wind and fresh power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in their lives. Because we know that when the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, one of the fruits, one of the main fruits that is produced in the life of every believer is this thing called what? Love. So if there is no love, it is because the Spirit of God is not at work in your life or my life. And you and I, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been called to love the most unlovable there are. Amen? Now, when it came to the church at Smyrna, Jesus commends them for their faithfulness to him. And he does so by saying, even in the midst of the most severe poverty and attacks from within by those who have compromised instead of standing firm for Christ, many of you have decided to stand tall. But then he gives them their rebuke. And he says to them, there are those among you, those Jews, that instead of holding firm, holding true to the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite and regardless of the cost, have chosen to go along with those who believed that it was all right to compromise, to eat the, the food that had been offered to idols, as well as to give in to this thing called emperor worship. And we talked a lot about that in parts one and two of our series. But let's go to Revelation chapter two and let's just revisit for a moment, Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to verse 11, and it says, And to the angel or the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, These things says what? The first and the last who was dead and came to life. Talking about Jesus in his resurrected form. He says, here's the commendation, I know your works. I'm aware of your tribulation and poverty, but he says, in spite of being poor, you are rich. Sounds much like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? The Beatitudes. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a what? Synagogue of Satan. Strong words Jesus gives here. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, for all who live godly will suffer. Word of God says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days, meaning it's not going to last forever. Be faithful unto death and I will give you what, everybody? A crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by what? The second death. For the second death is reserved for those who have not been faithful. So what is the remedy here? In essence, Jesus is saying, in the midst of your persecution, regardless of how intense it might be, this is what you need more than anything else. And that is a made-up mind. 
a made-up mind that you're going to stand tall, stand firm, regardless of what is going on from without as well as what is going on from within, which is different from a made-up mind. You and I can make up our minds and then we change it the next day. A made-up mind is a mind that has been made up and that individual is resolute and determined to keep it made up. And what is their reward for doing so? Jesus says, they shall receive a crown of what? Life. And he wasn't just talking to them. Again, this was the message for all the seven churches, as well as the church throughout every age and the church in the last days. So Jesus' message to you and me today, that if we remain faithful, you and I can have the crown of life. And there were two crowns in those days. First, there was the diadema, which was the royal crown. And that's not the crown that Jesus is referring to here in his vision. The crown that Jesus is making reference to is the crown that was known as the Stenophanus. That crown was the one who was given to one who was victorious in the Olympic Games. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It would go around their head and it would be either leaves or made up of flowers. That crown was given to the person who was victorious. He said they would have the crown of life, meaning that those of us who remain faithful to God will receive life and life eternal. It is the same life that Jesus made reference to in John chapter 10 and verse 10, one of the most distorted verses in all the scripture. Jesus says the thief comes what? To steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have what? Life and life more abundantly. That word life means life with God. And here's the thing about being victorious. When it comes to how God views being victorious, it's not the way you and I view and the world sees something, uh, someone as being victorious. We see that person as being victorious as the person who wins every battle. That's not the way it is in the Christian journey because many of us, although we are victorious, we don't win every battle. How many of you have ever won every battle in your Christian walk? Raise your hand. Not a hand is raised in this place, nor are those who are worshiping online or listening by radio. That's not what it means to be victorious in Christ. Well then, pastor, what does it mean? Simply this, to be victorious in Christ means to be faithful. So if I fall, being victorious doesn't mean I stay down. It means I get up and start my journey again. Amen? So all of us who remain faithful, we shall have life and eternal life. Anybody want eternal life? You don't sound like you want it. You sound like you're still debating in your mind. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of seeing life just go out of control. I'm tired of all the pain, all the agony, all the hurt, all the death, all the war, all the foolishness. I'm tired. I want life. And I want eternal life. And that life can be mine, dear friends, if I remain faithful to God. But today, we turn to the third church, the church of Pergamos, found in Pergam. 
which was the capital city of Asia. Pergamos, in a sense, was the Washington, D.C. of its day. It was around 40 miles northeast of Smyrna, and I showed you a map a few weeks ago of how close these cities were and how close these churches were. Pergamos claimed the fame in addition to being the capital city was that it was known for the many temples that had been erected to the Greek gods. Gods such as Zeus, the god of weather and the god of wind, and, and goddesses like Athena, who was the goddess of war. But this is what is important when it comes to Pergamos. It was the first city in Asia to have a temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. And if you remember from the other installments of our message, this was one of the main challenges for believers in that time in first, second century of Asia Minor, because you were forced to pay homage to the emperor of that day in order to gain a certificate that would allow you to do business and entertain in certain social settings. And if you refused to bow to Caesar and declare Caesar as Lord instead of the God of heaven, you were persecuted, imprisoned, and many lost their lives. All for being faithful. You're listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The Last Word. And if you're enjoying this message or you'd like to find others like it, you can find out more by visiting simpletruthsforlife.org. We'll conclude with the rest of his message right after this. Man, when I think about WGTS, I think about family. And uh, WGTS lift me up. The whole crew has truly been a blessing in my life. And um, I'm forever grateful for WGTS and what they do for myself and for the community. support makes a difference. I always uh, encourage people, like you want to listen to something, be encouraged when you're going through a tough time, starting 91.9, um, they are definitely up with the spirits. And uh, especially in the trying time we're in right now in society. Working together to impact the nation's capital. We are and I am forever grateful for, for the WGS family because that's exactly what it is, family. And we get to be a part of that as listeners, which is is amazing. Listener funded. WGTS 91.9. Always encouraging. At 88.3 on the Eastern Shore. This is Simple Truths for Life. And this week, Charles Tapp reveals the hope God wants his church to know in these last days. As he concludes his message, the last word. Let's look at the commendation given to Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2. And verses 12 and verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says the Lord, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we talked about that sword earlier. It means the sword of punishment, the sword of judgment. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14. I'm sorry. Let's just say verse 14 for later. Let's just stop there for now. 
So Jesus' commendation for the Christians at Pergamos is that despite that they were in a place where emperor worship was at the very heart of the culture, and despite this being a place where temples were erected to the Greek gods, many of God's people within that church remained faithful to the calling that God had placed on their lives, even as Antipas did even unto death. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. For it is now that Jesus gives the rebuke. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold what? The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing Jesus says I hate. First of all, he says, there are among you those who hold on to the doctrine of Balaam. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Old Testament prophet Balaam, but we know that he was a false prophet, a prophet who turned away from God and began to get involved in sorcery and witchcraft. And Balaam's claim to fame is that King Moab used him, King Balak rather, king of Moab, used Balaam to put a curse on the children of Israel. How many of you remember that story? And remember, no matter how many times he tried to curse God's people, instead of cursings flowing out of his mouth, what came out? Blessings. And the reason why Balak, the king of Moab, wanted Balaam to curse the people of God is because God had gained a reputation throughout the region that his people were victorious in battle against their enemies primarily because of the faithfulness of their God. And they were coming close to the land of Canaan, which was next door to the land of Moab, and he was afraid that they would be attacked as well. And he had heard of this false prophet, so he called him and said, listen, put a curse on the people of God, lest they come to us and try to overtake us as well. You've got to read this story. When you get a chance, go to Numbers chapter 22 to 25, as well as Numbers chapter 31. But despite him trying to curse the people of God, instead blessings came out. Now, you would have thought that after trying several times to curse the people of God, you would have thought that you would have given up, especially every time you open your mouth, the only thing that came out were blessings. I don't know about you, but I would have given up. It just didn't make any sense. How can you fight God? But Balaam was so determined to curse the people of God, and here's why. Because King Balak promised him great riches, please don't miss this point, if he would get the people of God to turn away. So because he could not curse them, he devised in his mind this idea, this plan, to get the children of God to compromise and begin to worship the false gods, especially the goddess of sexuality. Long story short, 
Because God's people fell into this trap of replacing the one true God with the gods of the flesh, God's mighty hand of protection was removed. Here's what we must understand as children of God. If we are determined to go against the will of God, despite the many opportunities God has given us, Revelation says that he will remove the lampstand. In other words, he will take away our witness that he has given us to witness to the world. God's hand of protection was removed. And if you read Numbers 24, you'll discover that as a result of God removing his hand of protection from the people of God because of their determined spirit to go against God, it says in Numbers 24 that 24,000 people lost their lives, including Balaam himself. So when Jesus makes reference to the doctrine of Balaam in his rebuke to the church at Pergamos, it is referring simply to a spirit that is willing to compromise the values, the principles, the word of God for the sake of personal gain. And it does not always, the spirit of Balaam, doesn't always manifest itself in one particular way. It can be a compromise for the sake of gaining political or material gain. But nonetheless, it is a compromise, dear friends, to gain power and control by any means necessary, even if it means hurting the faithful of God. But Jesus' rebuke doesn't end here with the doctrine of Balaam. But he also brings to their attention that there's a group among you who hold on to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And although we don't know specifically who these people are, we do know a lot simply by looking at their name, Nicolaitans. When you break it up, you look at Nico, which means conquer or to subdue, and Laos, which means people. So those who held the doctrine of Nicolaitan believed that it was their job to conquer, to subdue the people. What people? The people of God. Now, please don't miss this point. If you missed everything else, don't miss this. Because you and I as believers, we expect to get pushback from the world. Amen, Larry? We expect that. Those who held on to the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, those were not people of the world. Those were people who claimed to be people of God who were trying to get others who were holding on to the faith to compromise as they did for their own political material gain. Balaam had a desire for money. And when you have a desire for money and a desire for power, you will do just about anything to get it even if it means compromising your values, even if it means compromising the principles that you have held fast to all your life, even if it means compromising the unadulterated word of God. And it is that spirit 
that was in the church at Pergamos. Those who chose to compromise instead of stand tall. So when you read in your Bible and you read chapter 2 and you read about the church at Pergamos, you will see that it is called the compromising church. They had enough to deal with from the fact that they were in the midst of the synagogue of Satan, the powers that be, the temples of the Greek gods, the emperor worship. But then they had to deal with their own people turning on them. As I told you on last week, it's a dangerous thing to have an enemy from without. It's even more dangerous to have an enemy sitting right next to you. But what is the remedy for this church with this predicament? Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Look at what it says. Repent. You know what it means to repent. It means to do a 180. I hate when people say, I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to do a 360. <laughs> Have you heard that? You probably said it yourself. You know, it's the beginning of the year. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to do a 360. You don't want to do a 360, you're trying to turn your life around. Amen? What you want to do is a 180, which means you're going in a completely different direction. So to repent doesn't mean do a 360. To repent means to do what? A 180. Praise God for that. Or else, so do a 180, Jesus is saying, That's the Charles Tapp Modern Standard Version. Or else I will come to you how? Quickly and will fight against them what? With the sword of my mouth. You've heard that expression before, right? The sword of my mouth. Please don't miss this. God's people were being persecuted by the Romans through the power of the sword. Stay with me. Jesus is saying, despite the fact they are persecuting you, despite the fact that they are punishing you, despite the fact that many of you are going to lose your lives, they will not have the last word. I will have the last word. They don't have the power of the sword. I have the power of the sword. And whoever has the last word has the final say. Amen? Amen? I know you may find this hard to believe, but one of my flaws growing up was that I always had to have the last word. Yeah. Especially with my mother. Yes, Mrs. Nanny Bell Tap. And especially if I knew I was right. And I'll never forget this day, she and I were going back and forth, and she told me finally, this is it. That's the way it's going to be. And I walked away. But as I'm going up the steps, I've got to have what? The last word. And I mumbled out of my mouth something. And my mother did not have large ears, but she had supersonic hearing. And she said, Antoine, that's my middle name, get back down here. I thought that by walking away, having the last word, I would have the final say. But my mother showed me very quickly that she had the last word and that she had the final say. Amen. And Jesus is saying to John and Vision, listen, I know your, your people are being 
persecuted. I know they're being punished for standing tall. I know it appears as though everything is falling apart, including the very church of God. But remember, I have the last word. If we as people of God believe that God has the last word, then shouldn't we act like people who believe that God has the last word? It appears as though the church is falling apart. It appears as though the country is falling apart. It appears as though the world is falling apart. So how should I, as a believer, conduct myself as someone who believes God has the last word? And if God has the last word, I don't care who the emperor is. I don't care who the leader is. God has the final say. So do not fear. As it said in Revelation chapter 1, there's no need for you to be afraid. Why? Because your God and my God has the last word. Who says amen to that? You've been listening to Simple Truths for Life with Charles Tapp and his message, The Last Word. And if you want to listen again or share it with someone, you can find these messages on platforms like Apple Podcasts and now also on Spotify or visit us online at simpletruthsforlife.org. Now here's what we're working on for next week. But my parents understood that one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. You couldn't even come over to my house if my mother did not approve of who you were. That's a sample of what you'll hear next week as Charles Tapp continues with part seven of this series, Christ First, a journey through the book of Revelation with his message, One Bad Apple. Well, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll plan to join us again next week for more Simple Truths for Life.